Great. Well, it's great to see you this morning. Sorry to end your conversations earlier. Uh, my name's Dan. I'm part of the team here as well. Um, going to be starting our new series in James this morning called Monday Morning Christianity. If you've got your Bibles, um, the ones in the church, you'll find the book of James, a short letter written by the Apostle on page 716. And obviously our series is called Monday Morning Christianity. And all of us, to some measure, understand that Monday morning feeling. You know, it's coming tomorrow. You know, that feeling when your alarm finally goes off on Monday morning. I know I certainly roll over in a kind of dazed coma and try and find, try and find where the alarm is and stop the noise which is waking me up. And worse than that is um, you realize you've not made the sandwiches, you've not ironed your shirts, your trousers are in the washing basket still, it's dark, it's raining, and but somehow you have to get yourself out of bed Get yourself in a coherent state. You have to get the children up. You have to take them to school. And then you have to arrive wherever you arrive at work or meeting someone and act in a coherent way. We know, we know that feeling, don't we? Do we know that feeling? Yeah. It's coming tomorrow morning if you don't know it. And it, it. Just to remind you, it's coming tomorrow. Do you know what's worse for me, though? There's the Monday morning feeling. But there's also the Sunday evening blues. Yeah, we, we know that one, don't we? You know, um, my wife experiences it all the time. You know, Sunday evening, I'm a pretty can be a pretty miserable person. You know, I'm a bit grouchy. I, I short in my remarks. Just, just know that Monday morning is coming. Do you know, my, my phone's the worst. I have my, my, my alarm on my phone, and I, I go to set my phone, and it taunts me. Actually, taunts me. It says alarm set for seven hours, fifty three minutes. As if I didn't know it wasn't enough time. I'm tired away. It taunts me. And I know that it goes off the next morning. We understand that. Now, a typical Monday morning for me, tomorrow morning, is normally a 6 or 7 out of 10 in terms of traumaticness. Well, last week was the worst week for me. Um, I'm a teacher. I've just had six weeks of glorious summer holiday. And last Monday was the Monday morning after the six weeks off. And the alarm went off. And I realized I was in 11 out of 10 mode. It was disastrous. I hadn't got anything ready. And I, Monday mornings, we understand that feeling. And the reality is that Christianity can be a little bit like that. We can feel like it is our Monday mornings. When we step out of our service in a, a kind of 20, 30 minutes time and we go into the world, we can realize that Christianity is hard, that Christianity is difficult, but it's not the easy road. It can feel like that Monday morning feeling, like all the life is slowly dripping out of us. And what we need in those moments when we feel like that, and the reality is that we will feel like that if we're living as a Christian in this world, is we need something practical. We need something tangible we can get our, our teeth into and our hands around and our hearts to understand that we can apply to our lives and use. And that's what the book of James is. It's something practical that it recognizes that living as a Christian is hard, and but whilst it's hard, there is truth in the book of James we can get hold of. Truth that helps us to believe and not doubt. Truth that helps us to trust in the sovereignty of God rather than throwing blame. 
truth that helps us fight the temptations of life and fight for faith. Truth that helps us understand that we are partners on God's mission here on earth, called to share the gospel to the lost. That's what the book of James is. It's something practical. A book written to a people in need. And so when we go out this morning from today's meeting and we get into our lives and we realize that Christianity can feel like Monday morning, James is a good place to turn. So how does James start his letter? Let's look at verse 1 together. He says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. That's how James starts his letter. It's a, a similar pattern to many of the New Testament letters, although his, his greetings are a little shorter than perhaps Paul's greetings were. And James was Jesus' half-brother. He was the natural child of Mary and Joseph. And when we meet James in Acts 15, he's actually one of the senior leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And it might seem obvious to us why. Of course, he was Jesus' half-brother. He, he had a kind of a, kind of a a quick route to being up top because Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah. But that's, actually, that's not the case. When Jesus appeared after his resurrection uh, to loads of different people, it says he appeared to James, his brother, and then the apostles. But later on, in Acts 15, Paul names James as an apostle. And, and what's happened along the line is that James has kind of found faith. Now, whether it was that moment where he saw his brother resurrected from a tomb, or whether it was a little bit later down the line, we, we don't know when that's happened, but we know that James has come to faith. He's put his faith in Jesus, and he's risen to a place of significance. God has blessed him. But he doesn't write this letter like this. He doesn't say, James, hold on, guys, I'm Jesus' half-brother. You should listen to this. That's not his authority. Where does his authority come? It comes from his relationship with God. He recognizes that he is a servant of God. He says, James, a servant of God. He recognizes that actually his kind of biological connection to Jesus is insignificant. He recognizes that his place as servant to God, that is significant. And so he writes this letter out of the authority that he has been given as a servant. And then following the pattern of most New Testament letters, James then addresses his readers in both terms of where they are, their location, but also in terms of their status. He says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. I love that word there, scattered. It gives you a sense of the whereabouts and the situation and what's going on. You know, it's like when you take some seeds and you just scatter them. You don't really care where they're going to go. They just need to land on the ground. There's a sense that they could have landed anywhere. And you see, after the death of Stephen... Most of the Christians living in Jerusalem, the Jewish converts, would have fled. And many of these new believers would have known persecution. And at the end, they'd have been ended up scattered. They'd have been in a place called Syria, in the region of Babylon. And that's where they would have ended up. And so perhaps the first verse could have read to the refugees scattered in Syria or in the nations. And 
This means that James's book is, is not, a, it's not a theological paper, it's not a thesis, it's not like a, a Romans or a Hebrews, which kind of has a, a train of thought which runs through it and develops an argument. James is very much tends to jump around from topic to topic as he seeks to address the needs of those suffering in Syria, suffering in Babylon. And what we'll see for the people in Syria, for the refugees having fled Jerusalem, is that life is hard, but their life is like a Monday morning. It's like that feeling that they are just trying to get their head around what is going on. And the question we have to ask ourselves right at the outset of this book of James is, what can we learn from their situation? Because these people were citizens of Jerusalem, and now they're outcast citizens of Babylon in Syria. What can we learn from them? And by extension, what is James trying to teach us? Because we are also, in a way, citizens of Babylon. This is not our final resting place, because Jesus is eventually going to call us home. So we are like those people in Syria, refugees in this world. And so I think there's three things that James wants us to see. We're not going to read every verse. Like I said, it's kind of a scattergun approach. If we were to to read every verse, there's probably about 10 or 12 different messages we could pick up. And so we're going to pick up the big principles which go through chapter 1, and maybe we'll touch on a few of the things which we need to take home. So the first thing we see is that we should consider and find joy in trials. Verse 2 starts, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials. Well, that doesn't sound like logical advice. These guys are, they are refugees in Syria, and they would have been in a, a difficult situation. And James says, consider it pure joy when you face troubles. And I, I tried to put myself in, through some of the things that those people would have been going through. Now, it's almost certain that the believers in Syria would have been experiencing some kind of financial difficulties, some poverty, and throughout the book of James, especially in chapter 1 and chapter 2, there's persistent references to money and wealth, and it's clear that the majority of the, the readers of James's letters would have been suffering poor. They've probably left everything they own and traveled into Syria to escape persecution. What's also clear is that they would have been experiencing a good amount of religious persecution. There had been, there had been slander and exploitation. And, you know, Paul was famous originally for persecuting Christians, and then he was miraculously converted on the road to Damascus. I can't imagine that no one didn't take up Paul's shoes and continue the, the, the journey that he'd started in persecuting Christians. So whilst Paul wasn't the, the, the figure they had to fear, I imagine there were other Jewish people who were persecuting them for their beliefs. And so there'd have been a sense of slander and religious persecution because of their proclamation that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Do you know, the irony is that the situation is probably not too dissimilar from some of the Syrians now fleeing Syria 2,000 years later, having left their homes and all their worldly possessions, not really know, knowing where they're going with their families torn apart. And then the advice given by James doesn't seem to make sense to me. Consider it pure joy. Do you know what? That's not what I would have wanted to hear. I'm going through the mill, I'm suffering, and he says, consider it pure 
joy. And then he goes on to say these three words, which I think is just out of completely mad. He says, of many kinds. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. James, that's not what I want to hear right now. What I want to hear is something encouraging, something uplifting. My trials and my troubles are going to end. And he just says, consider it pure joy. You mean sickness, James? Do you mean loneliness? Do you mean bereavement? Do you mean depression? Do you mean disappointment? Do you mean slander? Do you mean exploitation? Yeah, James means it all. He deliberately cast the net wide. Trials of many kinds. To, to highlight the, the fact that as Christians, we can expect to go through the mill. We are foreigners living in a foreign land. And for the early church in Syria, life was hard and we can expect the same. So the question which follows from that, if we can expect trials to be hard, how does James expect us to consider it pure joy? Because I know in my heart of hearts that that is not my default response. When I'm going through the mill, when I'm, I'm really suffering, when I'm suffering the trials and tribulations of living in this world, I know my response is, get me out of here. I don't want to live in it. I want to find someone to blame. I want to find someone to, to shift it onto. I don't want to consider it pure joy. And thank goodness James continues writing because I'd have been a bit kind of naffed off at the moment if he'd stopped there. He says this, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. What do we see? We see that trials, and we're all going to go through them because we live in this world, produce perseverance. The, the Greek word, if you were to unpick that, points to a sense of carrying a heavy load, something on your back which you, you're kind of remaining under for a long period of time, and you, you want to stretch that back, you want to, you want to stretch it, and you want to almost someone, sometimes want to take it off. And the New Testament, over and over again, points to this quality of perseverance, de- developing perseverance. You know, I, I once joined a gym. I w- once joined, it was a quite a while ago, and I, I, my brother was big into the gym. I thought, oh, I can get into the gym like, like he was, and I'd go down, and I'd, I'd try and do what he was doing, but he'd, he'd spent a long time, and, and in the end, I just ended up looking at the weights, just, just looking at them, thinking, come on, <laughs> beef up, and it actually, it doesn't work like that, does it? It doesn't, you can't get strong by just looking at it. You can't get strong by just looking at the weights. You can't develop perseverance by just standing there and hoping that perseverance will come. Perseverance only happens when you experience trials. That's how it's going to develop. And so James says, consider it joy because you're going to develop a measure of spiritual perseverance. But perseverance isn't James's end goal. He says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. What does is, what is trials result in? It leads to perseverance. What does perseverance lead to? It leads to maturity. And as James writes to those Jewish believers in Christ scattered in Syria and Babylon, he wants them to see God's big picture here. He wants them to see that God's hand is at work, that we are his people, that we are his co-heirs, that we are joined up on his mission. James wants us to see that God ultimately works for our good, and he wants us to see his sovereign hands. And we have to ask ourselves, as people living this world, just temporarily, what trials are we facing right now? 
and what is being produced in you. What trials are we facing? I can imagine if I went around this room, I would get a whole host of different trials. You know what? Well, we all are experiencing trials. And some of us are kind of a, a level we're used to dealing with. Some of us are kind of a despairing level. and We're not sure how to deal with it. And the question I ask is, what is being produced in you? Are you being crushed by it? Or are you developing perseverance because Jesus wants to bring you through to maturity and completeness? James doesn't write, consider it pure joy. He doesn't write, walk around this earth with massive smiles on your faces because you're going through trials and tribulations. That's not what he writes because, you know what, that's not the logical response to suffering. Sometimes we have the response in our hearts that says, God, why are you doing this? And, And actually it affects our emotion. James calls us to see God's bigger picture, that he is sovereign, that he is above all things, and that even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of our trials and tribulations, God is building us, and he is maturing us, and he is bringing us to completeness, and he is developing a perseverance that when we stand before Jesus on that last day, we can be made complete. That is what God is doing. Notice the word there, right at the beginning of that verse 2. He says, consider it pure joy. He doesn't say it's going to be pure joy. He says, consider it pure joy. Why? Because trials develop perseverance, and perseverance develops maturity, so that when we stand before Jesus on that final day, we can say, God, I have given everything for you, and I've seen your hand at work in my life over and over again, and I'm going to choose to trust you no matter what. And so consider it pure joy. The second thing we see is that we should recognize our dependence on God and seek after Him. Verse 5 says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Do you know, the original refugees that James is writing to in Syria, those first believers, they would have felt isolated, they would have felt cut off, they were the fledgling church thrust into hostile territory, and they would have been completely unknown. They started life in Jerusalem where God's people were in the temple worshipping, and now they're thrust into Babylon, they're cut off and they're alone, and you don't often realize how dependent you are on something until it's taken away. Do you know, I'm dreading, I'm actually dreading the day when my dishwasher breaks down. I, I am. Not because, like, that moment, is, it's broken. I will go out in that moment, and I will go to the nearest superstore, and I will buy a new one, because I know that when it's taken away, I'm going to realize how dependent I am on that dishwasher. And I, I think it's a little bit like that for, for us as Christians. I can imagine that they had realized their dependence on God because they were completely taken away from everything they trust in. And so God wants us to see that we are dependent on him because ultimately we are. And then he says, ask God who gives generously to all. He wants us to see our dependency on him but he also wants us to ask. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 7, he says, ask and it will be given. You know, dependence on God creates a, a stability and a steadfastness and a trust in him. And then he says, come and ask of me. And so let's come. Let's come to God. What, it is, what is it you need to bring God? What trial, what suffering, what tribulation are you going through? Recognize your dependence on God and bring it to him and ask. 
and we have a God who gives generously to all. And then verse 6 continues with a little bit of a warning. He says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. You know, one of the dangers of living in this world as a, as a refugee, as a temporary citizen, is that our culture and our world around us can cause us to think like the world. It's, it's, it's too easy to become citizens of the world instead of to realize that actually we are citizens of heaven. And I imagine for those first believers in Babylon, they'd have, they'd have kind of been exposed to all kind of things they weren't ex- used to being exposed, exposed to. And they were, maybe, James was calling them to, hey, don't think like the world. Don't think like Babylon. Think like Jerusalem. Think like, know that you're citizens of God, that you're citizens of heaven. And one of the strange kind of paradoxes of Monday mornings is the disconnect between the words we sing on a Sunday and the way we act on a Monday. We sing words like this, the God of time and eternity, he orchestrates all of history. At this point, we've got our hands in the air, our God, he reigns forever. At his, the, his command, the whole world was made. In his love, he came down to save me, thank goodness. Our God, he reigns forever. And yet, when we get before God, Monday morning, and we, we go to seek him, it's just kind of a disconnect, isn't it? Do you know, we've got a God who has created the heavens and the earth, and he asks us to come before him in prayer, and we forget that he's the one who made the whole world. We forget that he's the one who's sovereign, that all of history, not just the last few thousand years, that all of history has been orchestrated through him, because the world would teach us to be skeptics and doubters and cynics. But actually, God calls us to believe. Do you know the warning there in, James, in chapter verse 6 is fairly, fairly blunt, isn't it? It says, like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind, that person should expect to receive nothing. And so when we come, we have to come in the, in the assurance that we serve a God who is over all things, and in him all things hold together. And so when James writes, if any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God. Do you really believe that God is going to move? You know, sometimes we can pray, and we don't believe it in our hearts, and we need to believe it in our hearts and pray and pray again. I I love these words of C.S. Lewis. He, He says this, he says, you must ask for God's help. That's a good starting point. Even when you have done so, and many of you will have asked for God's help over and over again, even when you have done so, it may seem to you for a long time that no help or less help than you need is being given. Never mind. After each failure, ask forgiveness, pick yourself up, and try again. Very often, what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but the power of always trying again. When we come to God, we're not necessarily going to get all our answers answered over and over again, all our petitions sorted out. But God wants us to come, and He wants us to come, and He wants us to come again. And as I was preparing this morning's service, I felt God speak to me about three things, and there's there's probably plenty more in here, three things that I I felt God say we need to come and come again. 
first one is in an area of our finance and our giving, and our trust in the sovereignty of God in that. Do you know, ultimately, God doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our resources, but He asks us to come and come again and come to Him and give generously and trust Him for our finances. And so when you're thinking about what you're giving, come before God and say, I'm going to trust you in everything, and I'm going to come and come again, and I'm going to seek you, God. Maybe it is you're in financial difficulty. Maybe that's your trial. Maybe that's the thing you're going through. Well, give generously to God and trust in Him and come and come again. The second thing I felt God say was, for those of you who have asked for healing, and you've done it, and you, you, you started off asking for healing for something in your life in faith at the beginning, but the time has, over oh, time and time again, it's kind of worn you down, and, and actually you come and someone says, let's pray for you, and in your heart, you're like the doubter who doesn't believe, like the wave tossed on the ocean. And God's provocation for you this morning is to come and come again in faith and know that I'm going to do a healing work in your life. And it may not be now, and it may not be tomorrow, but trust that I'm the God who's going to make you complete and new. And, and thirdly, for those, for salvation, for, for those people we've prayed for over and over again, and normally this can be family members, you know, the, the people we're desperate to see saved because they're our family, they're the closest to us. And we've prayed and we've got down and we say, God, would you just come and break in and save those people? Would you, would you set them free of their sin and bring them into life? But we've prayed and we've prayed again and nothing's happened. God says, come and seek me and I will give generously to you. And so I felt God say, let's come and come again. Let's pray for our family, for their, for their salvation and their baptism in the Spirit so that they know the joy of the Lord. And so we firstly see that we should find joy in our trials we see that we are dependent on God, and as a result of that, we have to seek Him. And the final point I want us to see as citizens of heaven is that we should listen and respond to God. Verse 22 says this, Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedoms and con- freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in all that they do. If we read all the verses of James 1, which we haven't got time to this morning. I've already mentioned that he brings a kind of scattergun approach to some of the things he's seeking to deal with, with the, the original refugees in Syria. And the, the summary of what is contained between nine, verse 9 and 21 is that when you live in a place which is not home, that life is going to be hard, and we are living in a place which is not home, and life is not hard. And, and one of the, the dangers is that we begin to absorb worldly values. You, sometimes you don't even realize it's happening. You don't even realize it's going on, but you start to adopt some of the things which the world has said is okay. It's like going to a swimming pool. Do you really know what you're swimming in? Do you really know? You know, I know I put a swim nappy on my daughter and it's designed to keep in one thing, but the other thing comes out. And so do you really know what you're swimming in? And it's like the world. There's 
we, sometimes we just don't even realize what we're swimming in, do we? We don't even realize that things around us are changing our principles and our goals and our mindsets. And I think this is especially the case, and James, verse 9 to 21 highlights this in, in relation to money. Do you know, we, we easily absorb the world's views on what's good about money. Do you know, the world generally views being rich as a positive thing. That's kind of the general overarching principle. And in fact, our whole government and our whole economy and the whole way that things are set up make it clear that it's aimed at making us richer and more prosperous and taking us out of poverty. That's the, the why they talk about the growth of the economy. That's why when a tax change comes in, there's always these calculations on like the BBC website. You, you punch your, your salary and you punch your, your grade, you punch your tax bracket and it tells you how much richer or poorer you're going to be. That's the way our world is set up. And yet the Bible is often negative towards money. In the New Testament, the word rich is often associated with, with wickedness. That's why Jesus said in Luke 6, he said, woe to the rich. He's signposting the danger of putting your confidence in in your wealth, it, rather than putting your confidence in God. And that's one of the things that James is writing. He's saying, don't put your confidence in the money, put your confidence in God. You know, in Babylon, the, the rich were overconfident and the poor were envious. That's the kind of a situation. That's what was going on there. And as Christians, both of those are wrong responses. We aren't supposed to be overconfident in our wealth, and we're not supposed to be envious of the wealth that other people have. I think we find our response in Jeremiah 9. In verse 23, it says this, This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have an understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these I delight declares the, world, the Lord. You know, the world follows their own desires and ultimately it lands them in trouble and they fi- try and find someone else to blame. And as Christians living in this world temporarily, we are not called to think like that. Why? Because we have a Heavenly Father who, is, who never changed, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is looking at Jesus, looking at our, our Messiah, that our trials and our troubles and our tribu- tribulations in crying out in prayer kind of come into perspective. And we develop a pers- perseverance and a maturity and a steadfastness in Jesus. So what is James's encouragement here? It's to listen and do what it says, because in that is blessing. One of the enduring features of the Jewish people as a whole is that they have remained distinct. You can, I was down uh, Paul Park the other day, and there was a whole group of Jewish people, kind of Orthodox Jews there, and they have remained distinct as a people group. And you know, we are called as Christians, and we're Gentiles, to remain distinct. Distinct. We're not to be like the world. We're not to conform to the patterns of the world. But instead, we're asked and called and commissioned to act as citizens of heaven and not of Babylon. Why? Because we have received the implanted word of God 
in our lives. The promise of the new covenant is that we are to know God and that his word is planted in our hearts and there should be a visible outworking of this. That's why in Luke 11 verse 28 it says, blessed are those who hear the word of the Lord and keep it. James is calling on his readers and he's calling on us to remain steadfast and consistent that even as refugees in Babylon, that we are to know that the word of God has been implanted on our hearts and we should taste and see that it is good. And so tomorrow is Monday morning. Tomorrow is Monday morning and we step out of the kind of routine of Sunday where we've declared the sovereignty of God, where we've listened to his words and the rubber hits the road and life's hard. And you might be going through all kinds of manner of trials, and some of them will be public and some of them will be private. And the way we respond to that is a kind of how we are measured, because our trials and tribulations should produce perseverance, and they should result in maturity, and in the end we'll be made complete and stand before Jesus' throne and bow our knee and say, God, I've served you with everything I've had, and I've given everything I have to you. And so we need to stand together as community. That's why in a minute we'll come and we'll take bread and wine together. It's, a, it's not only a personal thing between us and God, but it's also a communal thing. When Jesus sat down originally with his disciples, it was something he did in community because he recognized that community is an important part of being able to stand firm. And so when we come, whilst we, we're at the table on our own often, we're actually standing with a whole host of believers. Not, not only the believers in this room, but the believers in the churches in our town, in Paul and Bournemouth and Christchurch, and not only in, in the south of England, but also in the whole of the world. So when we come and take the bread and the wine, we say, I'm, God, I'm caught up on your, your mission to all the nations, and I'm part of your community. And God, would you just come and help me? Would you just come and break in? Would you come and show me the joy in what I'm going through? Because at the moment, it doesn't feel like joy. At the moment, it feels like sorrow and pain and despair. And what I really want is to produce perseverance and maturity in Christ. And so, I think we need to pray. And I think there's a number of things we're going to pray for as we respond, as we worship. I think we need to pray for those of us who are going through the mill. And for some of you, that is manageable and you feel like you're managing and maybe that's a dependence issue on God. For some of you, that is a despairing currently. And I, I believe that God wants to show you joy even if he's not going to sort the situation out immediately. We're not, not going to have a solution to every crisis that you're in. Some things will never have a solution. That's just the way it is. But God, I believe, wants to show you joy in that. And that in that, it's going to produce perseverance. I believe that some of us have... Uh, misplaced our dependence. We've become like Babylon as opposed to like Jerusalem. We've placed our dependence on the things of the world. And God's calling you to respond and act on that. Maybe it's to do with money. Maybe it's you've always aligned everything and you've put everything in a pot and you've worked out carefully what you can give and you've worked out carefully what you need to save. And that's prudence but God's calling you to see a bigger picture that he doesn't need your money, but he calls you for it. And maybe there's a, a sense that you're placing your dependence on your ability to manage yourself as opposed on your ability to trust in the sovereignty of God. And so maybe God's calling you to respond and repent and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry where I put my trust in you. Not put my trust in you, but become like the world. And 
I think we should also respond and pray and pray again. And for those three things I mentioned earlier about our finances, about healing, and about um, kind of trusting in God for salvation in our family members. And so let's pray and let's pray again. And so in a minute, John's going to come up with the band. I'm going to pray. We'll stand and we'll respond to God and then we'll worship. We'll do that song we just did before uh, I've come up. And then we'll come as community and we'll take communion together and respond in that way as well. So let's stand together. Let's bring ourselves before God. Father, I, I thank you for this letter to James, which is so practical and so relevant and so clear in its direction and the things that you expect and the things you call us to. Uh, Father, I pray that we would recognize that your word has been implanted in our hearts and that you have called us to listen and respond to it. Father, I pray for those of us who are going through the mill, who Monday morning really is Monday morning, but every day, that feeling of complete lostness and trauma. Lord, I pray for those who are suffering of bereavements and depression and loss and loneliness and sickness, who are going through the mill and it feels like they are stuck in hell. Lord, I pray that they would see the joy because they see the work that you're doing in their hearts, that it's producing perseverance and maturity and completeness. And that's really hard. God, we recognize that's hard because the world would want to find a solution. Let's get me out of here. Let's change it. But God, rather than crying out for that first, we, we cry out to see your sovereign plan at work in our lives. We cry out to see your sovereignty at work. Lord, I do, I do pray for, for those who are in those situations. Lord, I pray for a release in Jesus' name because the call that James gives us here is to, to recognize our dependence on you and to come in faith, not in doubt, to come in faith and to cry out and seek you because you are a God who gives generously. So God, where is there is depression, I pray for release in Jesus' name. Where is bereavement, I pray for a sense of joy in Jesus' name. Where there is sickness, I pray for healing in Jesus' name because when we come in faith, we know that you give generously to you, your church, to your bride of Christ here on this earth. Well, I pray for those of us who've inadvertently become like the world and placed our dependence in the flesh instead of trusting in you. Lord, I, 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 pray, I pray for me in this situation, Lord. I know there's times where I've put my trust in my own understanding. Lord, I repent of my sin. And I choose to trust wholeheartedly in you. I choose to, to recognize that I am dependent 100% on you, the orchestrator of all of history, the orchestrator of my life. And I trust in you right now in this moment. I am dependent wholeheartedly on you. I pray for those who have been dependent on themselves. I pray that they would be released from that sin and would recognize the sovereignty of God. Lord, we know that we are temporary citizens of Babylon and that one day you're going to call us home, but 
in the end that every knee will bow and that we will be made new and every tear will be wiped away from our eye and we will see you face to face. God, we, we long for that moment where we see you face to face, but would you just reveal yourself now? Lord, that we would see you face to face right now in this very moment as we respond and we sing and we give glory to you. God, would you just break into our hearts right now?